0: do we arrive at truth? My guest on the podcast today argues that it is through reality-based communities in government, media, law, and science and academia, which collectively determine truth through trial and error, rules and norms, and discussion and debate. Altogether, he calls this system the constitution of knowledge. But this system is under threat, he says, from both the right and the left. On the right, through the flooding of the public sphere with a fire hose of falsehoods. And on the left, through cancel culture.
1: In the constitution of knowledge, we assume everyone makes errors. That's completely allowed. We want people to come back and try again if they make an error. Well, that hypothesis was wrong, but the next one will be better. That's how we learn. Cancel culture does the opposite. It says we're going to punish the person, not the idea. One error, one tweet, one incident, and you're out for good. You're fired, your career is over, you're radioactive, you're unforgivable. This is about dominating the debate. This is not about criticizing the idea.
0: Jonathan Rausch is a journalist and essayist in Washington, DC. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. His latest book is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. I'm thrilled to have Jonathan Rauch as my guest today on Lean Out. Jonathan, welcome to Lean Out. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on Your book offers this brilliant diagnosis of the moment that we find ourselves in, contextualizes it within history, and looks at where we go from here, how we defend truth. So, you define the constitution of knowledge as liberalism's epistemic operating system, (laughs) social rules for turning disagreement into knowledge. Let's set the stage here. How have we established truth throughout history, and how has this constitution of knowledge revolutionized that process?
1: it's probably the constitution of knowledge is probably sin- the single greatest social technology humanity's ever invented. So any society, whether a small tribe or a large nation, has to come to some kind of common understanding about reality, at least for public purposes. And it turns out that's really hard to do. People deeply disagree and they often go to war and fight over those disagreements. We're pretty good as hominids at figuring out stuff that immediately impacts our life and is quite checkable like you know where do we find water where is the next tribe camped? are they friendly we are not as good at abstract questions like what is causing the disease that is injuring or killing our children i'm likely to come up and say it's it's that witchcraft it's that witch tara henley burn her (laughs) <laughs> and Tara is likely to come up and say, no, it's that Jew, Jonathan Rauch, uh bringing down the wrath of God kill him. Um, over history, we have tended to settle these disputes either through authoritarianism, which is someone basically is in charge and forces everyone else to come into line or be ostracized, uh, imprisoned, or often just burned. Or the other way to do it was civil war. Uh, and frequently you would have tribes and nations break up and go to war over questions about truth. And that's kind of how we did things for most of civilization until about 300 years ago, a bit more than that. The same general group of people who invented modern liberal capitalism and modern liberal democracy invented the constitution of knowledge and said, there's got to be a better way to do this and came up with one.
0: And this constitution of knowledge, reality-based communities, uh, you look at four pillars, science, journalism, the law, academia, you write that people may disagree on a lot of things, but they regard lying and making up stuff as a firing offense. I'm curious, the last time we spoke was last summer. We've been living through a pretty wild time. Do you think the pandemic has eroded the functionality of these four pillars?
1: Well, first, I should just say minor correction. The fourth pillar is government. Oh, thank you. The idea here is that the constitutional knowledge, you know, these are the rules that we use in science and journalism and law and government to determine what's true and what's false. And they require us to use methods that are um, impersonal, that anyone can check. You know, I make an argument in a legal brief. It it has to be something that holds up when people who disagree with me check it. Experiments have to be replicated news articles have to be confirmed by other people. And that's that's the only way you make truth. And that forces us to check each other's biases. It's a lot like the US Constitution. And the, the claim of the book is that we don't have to do this at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, God forbid, but we do have to do it in four major spheres or essentially society, liberal society cease to function. And those are academia and science research, number one. Number two is journalism. Number three is law. Where you can't just make up facts. Um, ask Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And number four is government. If government can create its own independent reality, um, that's totalitarianism. Orwell taught us about that. So, uh, forgive me for that minor discretion, but the background might be helpful to listeners. So, as we talk about the pandemic, um, I don't know that it's had any particular or long-term effect all by itself. Um, I think that that the great pandemic success of decoding the genome of coronavirus within literally weeks of its original discovery, designing on paper vaccines over a weekend, and then making those reality in less than a year in record time, is a shining model example of the constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community functioning. I mean, it, it organized and pivoted thousands of minds and hundreds of institutions all over the world to solve this puzzle. There is no other social system. that can come close to doing that. That's why I say this is the most transformative technology mankind knows. And that process, I think, has put science in a very good light. You know, it reminds us of what we have that is so special Um, and the fantastic rate at which medical knowledge, scientific knowledge, and other forms of knowledge are advancing. So in that respect, I think it's been helpful. In another respect, it's been the pandemic has been kind of like a die marker. It's not a cause of mistrust in science and the constitution of knowledge, but it has shown how deep and widespread that trust is and how a lot of people were either part of alternative realities like the anti-vax universe, conspiracy theories about you know microchips in vaccines, or how many were susceptible to it, became confused, didn't know who to believe or, or which way to turn so so the pandemic, I think also showed vulnerability and how far we have to go in repairing trust.
0: Mm. I worry a bit with science that there hasn't been enough public debate on certain issues during the pandemic. I'm thinking in this country of vaccine mandates, for example, and that in order for science to properly function, that you need the ability, as you wrote about in the book, to to be wrong sometimes, to make mistakes, to um, advance hypotheses, to talk about controversial subjects, to take controversial views. What do you think about that?
1: I think that. Diversity. So there are three things that a society needs to get right for the constitutional knowledge to work. And and now I'm going to try to not have a Rick Perry moment and forget one or two of them. (laughs) But the the first and most obvious is freedom of inquiry, speech and thought. Um, The second, somewhat less obvious, just as important, is the discipline of fact. That's what we you you touched on this earlier in the constitutional knowledge. You're not allowed to make stuff up. You have to go through a lot of rigorous processes to establish something is true. Uh, And you got to do that. I mean, if you want to establish something is true, I mean, no one's saying you have to be in the truth business, but if you are, there are a lot of rules to follow and they're very rigorous. You won't get thrown in jail if you don't follow them, but you won't be allowed to claim to have knowledge either. And then the third, the most overlooked is intellectual diversity, a room where everyone agrees is a room where knowledge won't advance because no one will be challenging the basic premise, which which might be wrong. Mm. Um, And in the United States, in academic contexts especially, we're now seeing situations where pretty much everyone in the room in some disciplines, some departments is left of center, if not way left of center. We're seeing politicization, to some extent where disciplines are deciding that what they're really about is social justice. And that means there's some things that you can't question. And yeah, I do think we saw some elements of politicization in some aspects of the debate about COVID. Is that the fault of constitution of knowledge and science? Um, I'm not sure it is because in, in my society, at least, I can't speak for Canada, but in the US, everything is so politicized now. Mm. Um, and if anything, I think COVID science actually ultimately did a pretty good job of resisting politicization. But, but yeah, we've we've got to be on our on our guard against deciding that politics or morality gives us clues about how the world works. Um, the virus was its own thing. You know, it is a living entity. It didn't really care about our politics. It didn't really care about our morality. Um, And when we let it, us, we make mistakes. That's what I'm going to go with. I'd be curious for your view, but what I'm going to go with is that here in the U.S., um, science did a pretty fantastic job with this. Made mistakes, of course. That's how you learn in science, by making mistakes. There is no other way to do it. Um, But the speed with which we got those vaccines out, got therapeutics out, we did learn about the effectiveness and often ineffectiveness, unfortunately, of of the social, um, isolation and, and shutdowns, you know, we had to learn by doing, and that's hard, but, but I think we made a lot of progress. Mm. Am I wrong?
0: I, I, I take a more pessimistic view. Um, I, I've seen a lot of stifling of, uh, scientific debate and that that's what concerns me the most is, is that I think for science to be able to function properly that it needs that pitting biased against biased and the, the idea of science being settled is not a realistic idea. And so I'm I'm more pessimistic in the Canadian context than it sounds like you are in the American context. Was
1: it within science or was it more sort of in the world of journalism, not reporting on what dissident scientists were saying? or what?
0: That's a very good point. I think that the world of journalism is... Uh, during the pandemic was really taking the stance of taking public health at its word all the time and not interrogating, not looking for alternate perspectives, not looking at the dissident scientists and really sending out kind of a uniform um, message about where pandemic science was at. And I I feel that that's the context that mistakes get made in. Um, I really felt like it was our job to look at each piece of science that came to us from the government, particularly with a more skeptical eye and to seek out different viewpoints and to really flesh out the kinds of fulsome debates that were happening. So it did seem to me a diversity of viewpoint issue.
1: Hmm, Interesting. I'm not sure I'd look at it exactly the same way. And the reason for that is that journalism about science in real time is just as hard as science itself in real time. And you don't know as a journalist, I don't know as a journalist, whether what we're seeing at any given moment is a valid scientific consensus that's going to hold up or groupthink, because they're going to look the same in real time. Mm -hmm. And you and I aren't equipped to know the difference. And science doesn't know the difference until we go through the process of having those views checked and tested and replicated. And, And that takes time and that means in a crisis situation you know we're not talking about having 5 years to do all the peer reviewed papers and and then replicate the experiments and oh my god wait that's that's not right when you don't have time for that it's very hard to distinguish whether what we're hearing is the consensus of informed experts who really know the stuff at this point versus hang on it's undercooked ask more questions uh, and i don't think there's ever ever going to be an answer to that. I'm a dissident, though, in, in some aspects of this. There's a, uh, there's a conventional wisdom now that the media in the United States, I, I would guess maybe Canada also, suppressed news about the possibility that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, mm-hmm. China. And that immediately became conventional wisdom, especially on the right. Boy, did we blow it. We were way too far to believe that this hypothesis was a conspiracy theory and we suppressed it and we should never have done that and i'm i'm of a very different view on that at the time when it was hypothesized that this virus might have come from molab in china it was the fact check the original fact check by politifact that looked at it said yeah it's unlikely that happened, but it might have. But then it said did not happen almost certainly was that it was deliberately created in a lab in China. They didn't rule out that it was an accident. They just said that it was unlikely, which is true. It's still unlikely as far as we can tell. And then maybe, yeah, it was maybe dismissed too quickly. But then in a matter of months, science journalists began taking a second look at it places like the Wall Street Journal, you know, big name places and some independent people. And journalists came back, gave it a second look and said, wait, maybe there's something to it. Science came back, gave it a second look and said, maybe there's something to it. And maybe there's something to it. We still don't know. The point here is that the process is messy and the public says, why don't you have the right answer the first time right away? And that's never how it works. Because when it works, there's always going to be back and forth and dead alleys Blind alleys and people believing stuff that maybe they shouldn't believe and going too far in one direction or another. But the magic of the constitution of knowledge is not that it gets it right the first time. Of course not. The magic is that it's better at correcting its mistakes than any other system, far better. Most systems don't even look for their mistakes, they just suppress efforts to correct their mistakes. And this was a classic example of the system doing what we wanted it to do, asking second and third questions and and correcting overshoots we should be celebrating what happened in the media and in science on the wuhan lab theory
0: Mm. i had a really interesting uh, canadian author on the program talking about this very subject she wrote a book called on the origin of the deadliest pandemic and spent a year sort of doing a deep dive into that and so i agree with you that this system was working effectively in the end i just wonder in the beginning if there were more critical questions that could have been asked um, particularly about vested interests in in that whole scenario. But I, yeah, yeah, I agree. That's with- very
1: often the case. You know, yeah. another hard one in the other direction is climate change. A lot of people who, people of good faith, you know, not people who are on the payroll of some oil and gas company, but but scientists, journalists, analysts of good faith, who, you know, 15, 20 more years ago were saying we're really casting some doubts on the firmness of climate change, global warming, are now being vilified for having got it wrong, for having been doubters, deniers. And I don't like that either. It's important to have those questions. Dissent is just always really hard.
0: Mm -hmm. And so, so important. And. And we can we can talk about this later but i think that the the biggest operating force in the newsrooms that i saw was this sort of uniformity of perspective that if you had had more diverse viewpoints and more arguments within the newsroom you might have had more critical reporting that you need exactly what you're arguing for in this book is that pitting of bias against bias
1: well that's the key you need that in two two places most important you need to have a diverse press corps so that you've got conservative outlets and you've got progressive outlets. And my understanding about Canada is that it's pretty uniformly to the left. Mm -hmm. Um, In the US, of course, we have a robust, sometimes not reality-based, but robust conservative media. But then the second place where you need some diversity of viewpoint is inside the newsroom. And that's getting harder and harder to do because people who go into journalism tend to be left-leaning. But if you don't have left-leaning journalists, then you need editors who will make sure that journalists go out and find uh, non-left-wing perspectives and, and include those. Mm-hmm. And that's also become harder. An editor of the New York Times uh, editorial page was fired for printing an op-ed that was conservative when the staff rebelled and said, that's, that's a form of violence. It makes us unsafe. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing, um, maybe you saw this at, at your former employer. But but we're seeing diversity, viewpoint diversity being called a safety violation, a workplace safety violation in newsrooms, and and that's just not compatible with serious journalism.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I want to um, get to cancel culture in a moment. But in the book, you, you talk about the doctrine of emotional safetyism driving a lot of the public discourse right now. How do you define that safetyism, and why, uh, as you write, is it inherently incompatible with free speech, intellectual diversity, and the pursuit of knowledge and social peace?
1: Um, emotional safetyism is the latest incarnation of a phenomenon I've been writing about for for thirty years since my earlier book. Brief advertisement, Kindly Inquisitors, the new attacks on free thought, published in what, 1993. And there I, I wrote about what I called the humanitarian threat to free inquiry. And this is the notion that words can wound, ideas can be violent. And, and just allowing those ideas to be expressed is a form of oppression and violence, for example, against marginalized people. Um which means that free speech itself and free inquiry, and for that matter, science itself, which is about criticism, which is often hurtful, that all of these things are human rights violations. So what you have here is a deep compatibility with the whole premise of the constitution of knowledge, which is that that offensive, obnoxious, heretical, blasphemous, seditious view that's out there, might be right, might be partly right, might at least serve the purpose of helping, uh, the rest of us understand why we're right. And that that ideas, even wrong ideas, are never the same as violence. And that someone like me, you know, a, a homosexual American born in 1960 really needs to understand, and for the most part, do understand, that you know, if someone calls me a fucking faggot or says it's, you know, usually it's going to be something more like saying homosexuality is a treatable disease or Uh, it's a disgrace in the eyes of God or whatever it is, that this is very, very different from being hit over the head with a two by four, because I have agency in how I can interpret statements that I disagree with. I can interpret them as this is violence against me, but I can also interpret them as this person is saying something wrong and may have a psychiatric issue as not a reflection on me. If someone hits me over the head with a two by four, I don't get a lot of choice about whether my skull splits and a lot of people have been gay bashed. So it is is—it is always incorrect to equate ideas with violence. It's really just a way of trying to control the public discourse. Um, emotional safetyism is the latest form of that. And it basically says that if something is upsetting, I have a right not to hear it. I should be kept safe from it. This originated on the left in America. But now has been picked up on the right. In Texas, legislators, conservative legislators introduced a bill that would give parents a, a, a right to, to, to sue a teacher who taught something that made a student comfortable. Well, I got news for you education is uncomfortable because it confronts us with strange and alien and important concepts. So that's emotional safety. I'm sorry to go on for so long.
0: No, not at all. And let's talk now about cancel culture. You write about that extensively. You have this great cancel culture checklist, which we will link to in the show notes. You've said part of the point of cancel culture is to keep people guessing. I certainly saw that in the newsroom. My experience was nobody knew exactly where the line was. So everybody kind of steered well clear of it. This generates what you've called a spiral of silence walk us through what's the difference between cancel culture and criticism and why is cancel culture so much more destructive
1: sometimes occasionally it can be hard to tell the difference between criticism and cancel culture like you know i could say tara henley is an incompetent journalist who should not be working at the bbc and give five reasons why i think that's true based on stories she's written So in one context, that can be criticism. In another, it can be canceling. So how do we know the difference? Well, in practice, it's usually quite easy to tell. Um, Canceling is not about criticizing an idea in order to correct it. It's not about a rational exchange of views in order to remove error. Cancel culture is about removing Tara Henley disqualifying her from the debate, punishing her, deplatforming her, losing her job so that she will be silenced. In the constitution of knowledge, we assume everyone makes errors. That's completely allowed. We want people to come back and try again if they make an error. Well, that hypothesis was wrong, but the next one will be better. That's how we learn. Cancel culture does the opposite. It says we're going to punish the person, not the idea. One error, one tweet, One lame joke. In fact, you never know what it could be because they want to keep you guessing. They want to make you neurotic. So you're always over-policing yourself. One incident and you're out for good. You're fired. Your career is over. You're radioactive. You're unforgivable. This is about dominating the debate. This is not about criticizing the idea. In the book, I have a cancel culture checklist. It's seven items. We can get into some of them if you like, but but basically, they say, if any of if the more of these seven things are going on, the more certain you can be that you're being canceled. One is, for example, are they lying about what you said or didn't even bother to read what you said? Another is, is it an organized campaign that is a mob attack rather than just an individual? A, a sure sign you're being canceled. Are they going after your friends who defend you? Secondary mm. boycotts. That's pure intimidation. That's never allowable in, say, good science or journalism um and so so in practice it's usually pretty easy to tell
0: Mm -hmm. and I think you know, when we talk about sort of the movements for social justice right now and how those view things like free speech that are part of the constitution of knowledge, uh, Nadine Strossen was on the podcast last week, as you know, talking about the importance of free speech to minority rights. I want to talk a little bit about the battle now for gay marriage, which you were a pioneering activist in. What role did the constitution of knowledge play in that movement's success?
1: Everything everything. Um, we had, we being okay. So background, I'm a homosexual American. I was born in 1960. The world I was born into was one where you couldn't turn on the radio on a Sunday without hearing a preacher curse, homosexuals, damn us to hell, blame us for all the, all the ills of the country. We were considered subversive, could not work for the government, could not work for governor, government contractors or get security clearances, could not serve in the military, could not get married, could and were arrested for intimate sexual relations, um, could not, in many cases, even gather in gay bars. Bars would lose their licenses and be raided by the police. We were considered insane. We were considered mentally ill. Gay people were given so-called treatments like shock therapy and occasionally even lobotomies. And I could go on, but you get the idea. How do we change all that and get to a world where I'm married to a man now for, well, 12 years, um, seven at the national level. And it's, it's barely even controversial. Well, it's not because we had a lot of money or a lot of votes or a lot of anything, we were a pariah class. We were deep in the closet and underground. It's because in 1958, the US Supreme Court, in a decision no one's ever heard of, because it was a one sentence decision, literally, just said, the judgment of the lower courts is overturned. The Supreme Court gave us our voice. It stopped the government from doing what it had been doing, which was censoring gay commentary including a magazine that advocated same-sex marriage in the 50s. And once the government did that, it became possible for the early pioneers, people like like Frank Kameny, to step forward and say, what's what's being done to us is immoral. It is unscientific. It is evil. It is wrong. It is a violation of our constitutional and civil rights and the promise of America. And you know, I'm leaving out a lot of history and a lot of things that happened in between, but The basic story is that the gay rights revolution was all about free speech and free thought. And it was about the constitution of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Normal people don't get up every morning deciding who to hate on and focusing on, I don't know, Jews, blacks or homosexuals. Some people do, but most people don't. The reason gay people were hated is because the public believed false things about us. They thought that we were seducing children that we were spying for foreign powers and were being blackmailed into betraying our country. Um, They thought that we were, we were bringing God's judgment down on America and spreading all kinds of diseases on and on and on. Well, if, if people believe that you're seducing their children, bringing God's judgment down on the country and undermining the government, they will hate you. So we had to show them that those things were wrong. And that was in fact, substantively not difficult. It took a while, but it wasn't difficult because the facts were on our side. Frank kameny the hero of the early gay rights movement, you know, he's alive as recently as, as 2011. He was a trained Harvard scientist, and he was relentless about holding people to account where they lied about gay people or just said things that were not tested and were not true, like that we were mentally ill, psychiatric profession had evidence that we were not mentally ill in the early 50s. It took them 20 years to change that view. It took them way too long. They did eventually, but they did change because the facts were on our side. So ignorance is the problem behind hate, and the answer to ignorance is knowledge. And the way we get knowledge is the constitution of knowledge and never suppressing ideas just because you think they might be wrong.
0: Hmm. And you wrote a piece for American Purpose back in April on trans activism, arguing that the radical gender ideologues are harming the transgender community, the trans cause. You have this incredible paragraph where you go through the arguments deployed against trans people and note how similar they are to ones previously deployed against gay people, which makes you humble about getting this issue wrong. I also feel humble about getting this issue wrong but you write that you also see a different and more disturbing historical parallel. Walk us through what that is.
1: In the 1980s and early 90s, it started becoming clear to my generation of, of, or at least some members of my generation of gay and lesbian civil rights advocates that the movement had been taken over by radical leftists, who were importing a lot of assumptions into the civil rights movement that that we thought didn't belong there like they wanted to overturn bourgeois norms in society stuff like religion which they were very hostile to capitalism they were hostile to uh, marriage military service they thought both of those things were part of the problem and Starting in the early and mid '80s, as we were getting started on marriage and military service becoming our big causes, a bunch of us started pushing back and saying, uh, "Just because you're gay doesn't mean that you're pro-choice." Just to pick an example, we have all the same diversity of viewpoint as else in the population, and there's nothing about equality for gay people before the law that implies that you have to overturn the norms and values of of bourgeois society. In fact, we buy into those. We want to get married. We want to serve our country in in the military. We want to raise kids. We want to be part of the American dream. And that played, so a lot of things went on. I, I don't want to overstate, but doing that, raising gay voices against extremists who are operating in the name of gay rights was very important. In rescuing the movement from extremists who had capturing it and making the public understand that what we were asking for was no more and no less than America delivering on the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence. And that's ultimately why we won marriage. People became convinced over time that we were not out to destroy marriage by turning it into some kind of perpetual orgy or whatever they had in the back of their minds, that we just wanted to, to join the same American institutions as everyone else. Well, we now have what looks like a similar situation in the world of trans civil rights and and related issues. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on this, um, but my friends in the trans community include people who are deeply alienated and disturbed by what they see as a takeover of the movement by radical gender ideologies, also called genderqueer, which are importing a whole bunch of assumptions that really have very little to do with making life livable um, in, a, in a good and decent and equal way for trans people. You know, things like you are whatever sex you say you are, regardless of biology, and no one has a right to question that. And questioning that is a form of violence. Um, well, that's, that's radical stuff. It's, I think, empirically unsupportable. It seems quite clear that biological sex is a real thing and is independent of what people say their gender is. And though I'm not a trans person or a trans leader, I've come to feel that it's important that the trans mainstream, and they're out there, I know some of them begin speaking up and taking back their movement. So, my friendly suggestion in the article that you mentioned is that two things need to happen to avoid a train wreck in which the trans civil rights movement flames out through experience and takes a lot of other civil liberties down with it we're already seeing this in the, you know the florida don't say gay bill it's inspired by anti trans feelings but it's been expanded to include gay people big surprise so two things need to happen one has started to happen already and that's making the distinction between trans civil rights which involves treating people decently and some hard questions like what do you do about children? Uh, and what do you do about certain sports with male to female trans athletes? Those are hard questions, but they're resolvable. But they don't involve repudiating the idea that sex exists and matters and is biologically determined than we're a sexually dimorphous species. So the first thing to do is distinguish the radical ideology from um, the core of the trans civil rights movement, understanding that a hijacking has occurred, and making that distinction. That started to happen. We now see routinely references to radical gender ideology. Second thing, though, hasn't happened, and that's what happened in gay rights movement in the '90s, which is it's not going to be helpful. You know, I'm I'm a white cisgender. Gay man, I don't have credibility in a lot of the trans world, and it's not my fight to fight. What's going to have to happen is the moderates come forward and say, "Wait a minute, you don't speak for us. We're not out to subvert all sex-based institutions. We're not transgressing all norms around gender. You know, just mixing it all up, not having gender anymore. We're not about that. Uh, that has not yet happened."
0: And it's it's back to the Constitution of Knowledge, as you point out in your article, that there were a ton of moderate voices in gay rights publishing books, yourself included, and making all of these arguments, and that those arguments ultimately won, um, which I find so hopeful. And and on that note of hope, I mean, this book has been your most commercially successful book so far. What do you take from that? What do you take from that response from the public?
1: Well, First, that there's a lot of concern about attacks on truth. People out there in the world who are consuming media have realized that they're being manipulated in sophisticated and powerful ways. We haven't talked about the most important way that they're being manipulated. And and we need to spend at least five minutes on what's happening from the right. Mm -hmm. It's a bigger and more serious threat. And if all we talk about is the left and cancel culture, Under ideology, we will be missing the most important and front part of the picture. So people realize that there are attacks on truth. They realize that these are sophisticated and powerful, and they're looking for understanding. And that's a big step forward. Podcasts are a great media where people can actually get serious ideas in the way that we're doing now. Podcasting may be the one unadulterated good to come out of digital media. And I find that that there's a lot of hunger for serious conversations about important issues. Um, I've found that people like to be challenged by challenging ideas. So that's another takeaway, and I think that's that's also a good thing.
0: Mm. I agree, and let's definitely talk about the right. So, I had two questions for you on the right. The first is about this fire hose of falsehoods that you write about, and and how that is impacting the public conversation. And the other is on the ascendance of the new right, who explicitly say they are post liberal. So, let's unpack both of those. Let's start with the fire hose of falsehoods and the role that's playing.
1: the The tactics that have come into common use in at least United States politics, have probably never been seen before in the way that we're seeing them. The last example that you can even think of would be the pre-Civil War period when Southern secessionists ran a mass propaganda campaign to convince the South that they should secede because otherwise the Northerners were going to sweep down, invade their country and force the women to have sex with black men. That, as you recall, did not end well. What's happened more recently is the adoption by Donald Trump and his MAGO movement and Steve Bannon, who famously said that the tactic would be to flood the zone with shit. Is a Russian tactic. Uh, perfected by russians it's very old it's called the hose of falsehood and you spread so many lies half-truths exaggerations and conspiracy theories so fast in such large numbers through so many channels that you're not necessarily trying to persuade people of any particular falsehood you're just trying to persuade them that that there's no truth out there to be had. You get them so confused about what might be true, what might not be true, that they become cynical uh, about even the possibility of there being truth. This is something that Donald Trump did during his campaign in 2016. PolitiFact found that 70%, 7 not 1 7, 70% of his checkable statements were false. Versus about 25% for Hillary Clinton. You're not 70% false by accident. Um, You're doing that on purpose. Then he lies about whether it rains during his inauguration, an obviously checkable fact. He lies about the size of the crowd, an obviously checkable fact. This isn't to persuade people that it wasn't raining. It's to assert his primacy, his dominion over truth. From now on, reality is whatever I say it is today, and tomorrow I can say it's something entirely different, or I can say it's five things that are incompatible. I can change the course of a hurricane with a Sharpie pen if I feel like it. This goes out throughout his presidency, but it reaches its apogee and its perfection in the most audacious and successful firehose of falsehood, Russian-style mass disinformation campaign ever run in America by any adversary, domestic or foreign, and that's Stop the Steal. And he commences that in April and May of 2020 with his mystifying campaign against mail voting. That is mail-in, M-A-I-L. Mm. You know, people like me at places like the Brookings Institution think, why would he why would he discourage mail-in balloting because, you know, there's a pandemic and elderly people are exposed. That's his constituency. What we didn't realize right away at least was that he was not targeting the election. He was targeting the day after the election. He was putting in place the narrative and the social networks for what would be his mass disinformation campaign if he lost, which he knew was probable. And then sure enough, the day after the election, He launches an absolutely immense disinformation campaign in which they go to court with 60 different false and bogus claims about how the election was stolen, all of which are thrown out by courts, including by solidly Republican judges. But the point of these lawsuits isn't to win the lawsuits. It's to confuse the public. And then they come out with all kinds of stories about stuff you know, that, that ballot workers in Georgia smuggled in ballots, the Chinese sent in fake ballots printed on bamboo. They call for a fake audit in the Arizona race. And then once the, once the even, I shouldn't necessarily say fake, but it was an audit by pro-Trump forces, once even the pro-Trump audit says, that the election in Maricopa County in, in Arizona wasn't stolen. Trump announces, we won the audit. The audit proves that the race was stolen. And by the way, the real steal happened in Pima County, Arizona. So you see what's going on here. They're just making up so much stuff at such a high volume that a majority of Republicans think, well, the election must be stolen because so many people say it has. And independents, a plurality of them, last time I checked, say we'll never know who won the 2020 election. And that's what you're out to do. This tactic is very sophisticated. It's very powerful. It is completely antithetical to a modern liberal democracy that's that's fact-based. And now that it's been weaponized. Now that it's out among us in politics, we have not seen the last of it.
0: Hmm. And how are you thinking about this new right? I'm thinking about thinkers like Adrian Vermeule and Curtis Yarvin and 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 that group. How how do you think about them and and their idea that uh, that they're moving beyond liberalism?
1: I'm certainly not. Casual or complacent about it, but I also recognize that so liberalism. What is liberalism? Another big conversation. I'm going to try not to give you another monologue, but the core idea of liberalism, um, whether it's liberal democracy, liberal capitalism, or liberal science—the one we've been talking about—it's rule by rules instead of rule by rulers. Which is you have these these big systems, like a capitalist economy, that's prices or like representative democracy, where you vote, or like uh, constitutional knowledge, where anyone can perform an experiment and you need to abide over time by the outcome. They cover the globe, they're incredibly good at organizing cooperation on a national and even global scale, but they're also very counterintuitive. Like, instead of trusting someone that you know from your own party to lead, you have to accept the legitimacy of the idea that maybe this massive, you know, 200 million voters picked the other side. Most humans in most times have not been willing to do that. You have to imagine that somehow a market is gonna allocate goods better than some, you know, smart person would do it. And you have to believe that that strangers the world over who are performing all kinds of arcane experiments that you can't even understand or you're gonna to have to trust that that, that process is, is going to come out with something that seems, you know although it may be extremely weird, that, that you're gonna to have to, you should believe is probably true. So there's nothing new about anti-liberal ideologies saying you can't trust the system, it's a failure, it is anti-human, it is anti-religious, it undermines God and morality, um, it's corrosive of our social norms, on the one hand, they'll say it it has no values because it's morally neutral. And then on the other hand, they'll say, actually, it's kind of totalitarian and absolutist because it imposes its own values on and on and on and on. There's nothing new about those attacks. And liberalism has learned a lot from them because there's elements in truth in some of them. Um, so what's happening today, we're seeing the latest iteration of rebirth of those many those challenges to liberalism latest version isn't particularly new it's a version of a kind of european thinking Uh, a lot of european thinkers have been hostile to the idea of separating church and state for example and and america is unusual because it does that most european Mm. countries don't Uh, they have official religions and in a certain kind of european conservative thinking it's natural that you'd have a nation, and it would be a nation that shares similar values, and those would include its religious values, and government should embrace those values and impose those values, at least to some extent, because otherwise society will just drift and rot. So that's kind of what they're saying. Um, I'm not alarmed by it if it's kind of at the level of, of age-old powerful critiques of liberalism. I am alarmed by it. When it becomes weaponized by political actors who are out to destroy democracy. That's a different ballgame. When you are using that, for example, as your excuse to go to the president of the United States and say, look, you won, and the other side winning would be the end of our country. So let's tell the vice president to rule against the ballots from Arizona, Pennsylvania, and a few other places that's a different ballgame and that's where we are unfortunately right
0: now mm. well just lastly jonathan your your last chapter addresses the pushback that's now needed urgently to defend this constitution of knowledge i found that last chapter very inspiring it shaped my thinking a lot where do we go from here what needs to happen for uh, for us to get back on track
1: well here's a suggestion Someone who works at a mainstream news organization and begins finding that that organization is becoming intellectually monotonal, where pretty much only left-wing views are prevailing, and it's getting harder and harder to shake that and to get other kinds of views published and broadcast, someone like that should make diligent efforts to stand up for viewpoint diversity. Um, within that organization, and try to make it see that it's going on the wrong road. Uh, that's very important to try to change our own institutional environments to, to match the constitution of knowledge, free speech, discipline of facts, diversity of viewpoint. And then if you see where I'm going with this, and then if that person, after two or more years of, of really trying to turn things around, determines that she can't, then it would be great if that person has the courage to go out on her own and become a voice. Um, She might take a financial hit for doing that, especially initially, or, or her enterprise might fail altogether. But the beginning of pushback is for those of us who are dissidents, who believe in institution of knowledge, even if we don't necessarily always agree with the outcome, who believe in diversity of viewpoint, even if it means hearing views we deeply object to, it matters that we not let ourselves be demoralized and silenced, because that's the goal of the other side. The goal here is to demoralize your opponent. So they think there's no point even speaking up anymore. There's so much disinformation. No one knows what's true. They won't care. Or there's so much canceling that I'll just, I'll be crushed like a bug and it won't make any difference. So I'm just going to stay home. The other side wins. Their goal is to divide and demoralize us. The other side wins if we get demoralized. So when someone goes out on Substack and says, you know what? I'm going to launch a tell it like it is Substack with provocative guests. And I'm going to find an audience for that. And I won't be silenced. When someone like that invites me on her show, I say, hell yeah, because it's also my job to help support that person. And that's how we do this. It's not just one person at a time. We need institutional changes as well. There's a lot of things that need to happen to change in universities and and newsrooms and media and, and so on. But some of it is what you're doing right now. And that's why I'm here to support you.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. And um, and thank you for your book, which, as I say, really shaped my thinking and was part of how I came to the decision that I did. So thank you again. And thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you. It's a privilege.
0: Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.